You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course. Present my thoughts the way I want. Right again. Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh. There it is. Drawing board or Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's one. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. We have some questions on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics.com website, but also I want to touch on the big news of the week. President-elect Barack Obama has offered the job of Secretary of State to his former rival in the Democratic primaries, Senator Hillary Clinton of New York, and she has, uh, by all accounts, accepted. It is not historically uncommon for a president-elect to offer the job of Secretary of State to either a rival or prominent member of the party. One thinks of James Blaine, the Republican Party in the 19th century, or uh, William Jennings Bryan, who, as soon as Woodrow Wilson became president, became Secretary of State. The office is the top diplomat in the land, and it is flattering to countries to be sending to them an important, uh, well-known American politician who has a big name and who, although they might not have direct diplomatic experience, have a reputation of their own. And there's two thoughts I have about that. One is that the Secretary of State position used to be a pretty good launching pad for uh, a run for the presidency in the 18th the 19th century. Uh, Thomas Jefferson served as Secretary of State in the Washington administration and then later became president. His Secretary of State, James Madison, became president after him. James Madison's Secretary of State, James Monroe, who became president after him, and after a heated battle in which uh, Andrew Jackson made his first attempt to kind of disrupt the normal Washington chain of events with the presidency, John Quincy Adams, who had served as James Monroe's Secretary of State, became president. So he had this line of seeing the office as Secretary of State as aligned to the presidency. And it's not surprising because the office of Secretary of State is essentially the top diplomat in America, the person that's going to interact with other nations. That's a powerful office. And in early America, it was second only to the Treasury in terms of the size of the department and the number of employees. It is in the presidential line of succession, and it was uh, even farther up in that line. If something were to happen to the vice president in the 19th century, it would be the Secretary of State that would take over. Now, that's been changed uh, since the uh, 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. It's the Speaker of the House who would take over if something happened to the vice 
president. But still, among the cabinet members, the Secretary of State is still first in the line of succession. So, The second thought is that, more recently, the office has not been such a springboard. And the last president to have been a Secretary of State is James Buchanan. And then in the later half of the 19th century, you saw a fellow like James Blaine, who was someone who was just uh, seen as a shoe-in for the presidency, but had a lot of problems along the way, never did become president, and eventually became Secretary of State under uh, President Garfield and then uh, President Benjamin Harrison. Recently, you've seen Colin Powell, who many people talked about for uh, president around 1996. After Bush was uh, elected, he became Secretary of State. So has the position sort of now become a place to retire those who sought the presidency rather than a stepping stone? That remains to be seen. And it also remains to be seen if uh, Hillary Clinton even desires to run for the presidency. More questions from the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics.com website. Kevin Willis writes, Isn't this a case of history beating up politics again? While there's clearly some historic precedents being set, it looks to me that they're being set by sailing in on the tides of history. In other words, very little went against what history predicted. I refer to your own audiobook, History Picks the President. As your books did so well to point out, there were very few historical analogs where Republicans wouldn't lose the White House. And despite the general unpopularity of the Iraq War, I can't imagine going the polls in 2008 was anything like going the polls in the midst of the Civil War or during World War II or Vietnam. As I said in 2006, did you call it or did you call it? Booyah! 2012 is not going to be a Republican year. Obama will have the power of incumbency, and he's much more Reagan-esque or JFK-esque or FDR-esque than Jimmy Carter, a case where the Republicans were actually able to unseat an incumbent Democrat. Even if the economy gets worse and Obama is slow to withdraw from Iraq, and even if there's a fresh terrorist attack or attempt in America, history seems to say that incumbency is power, more for the actual president than the party, of course. Seems to me if the GOP was smart, they'd focus on the House and Senate rates in 2010 and 2012 and 2014. Okay, well, a lot there. Thank you very much, and booyah indeed. History did call the election and had a lot to say about 2008. It's certainly another arrow in the historical student's quiver. Of course, that shouldn't take the excitement out of politics. Um, I, you know, Just by bringing up all these historical trends and, and saying that it's likely this will occur, that will occur, there's always a chance that voters could do something different, that campaigns can always shock and surprise or that events could change, and the campaign would have to be in good enough shape to capitalize on those changes. 2008, the deck was pretty much stacked against McCain, more than most candidates. But what would happen if all of a sudden the Bush administration had gotten 20 countries to agree to help us with Iraq, and at the same time, Paulson's early move caused a run on the stock market and a rise every day, and made people feel better, and companies hired a few more people, and the employment numbers seemed to change. Only if the McCain campaign had been running strong would they be able to capitalize on such a turnaround. Obviously, there's a small chance of all of that happening, but political actors should never stop and say, oh, well, the guy with the podcast says there's no chance because history says so. Not that they ever would, 
people that are involved in politics and campaigns, the last thing they want to hear about often is historical trends because they always feel that those their guy will change it. But while in my audio book and podcast here I predicted the outcome, I was also uh, silently outlined the only winning strategy that John McCain could perhaps meet with the White House and try to change events. Because after all, the only thing that's at issue, in my opinion, was the Bush presidency. And only if the Bush presidency was improved would John McCain win. And so John McCain was tied to George Bush, whether he wanted to be or not. This kind of coordination never really happened, and McCain, despite some little gestures, treated the White House like radioactive material, and thus lost like every candidate who's tried to do that has. Americans still generally like to re-elect their president, something in the neighborhood of 70-75% of the time. When incumbent president runs, the incumbent president wins. That's obviously a factor in Obama's favor. But I would not go too far in making any assessment of 2012 right now other than a few basic things. That presidents that are starting in a crisis have an advantage and that all incumbent presidents have an advantage and that it's also uh, an economic factor. It's difficult to imagine the economy getting worse in four years, but perhaps it could. It's difficult to make a trend about eight years as a president. I would be cautious there. A president can win or a president can lose on their reelection. Yes, there's some factors working for Obama right now, but it's way too early and we don't know the events yet. Here's a couple negatives for Obama. If there is a downturn in the economy and it does get its no improvement in four years, it will be his problem. History clearly shows that. There wasn't a great economy during all of the Ford presidency, but when the economy soured during Carter's presidency, nobody went back to Ford. They blamed it on Carter. During Roosevelt's term, when there was a spike spike in the economy and then a little bit of a recession in 1937, it was dubbed the Roosevelt Recession, and nobody could blame it that much on Hoover. So you do own the economy once you get the keys to the White House. So that's a negative. The second would be, uh, as you indicate, the 2010 midterm. That is a historical trend that probably shows that Democrats will lose some seats. They had a really big win here, and they had a big win in 2006. So they're historically indicated to lose seats in the 2010 midterms. Doesn't mean that, like George W. Bush in his first term, Democrats could turn it around and actually gain a few seats based on events. It's just historically unlikely. And uh, one thing to be clear about, though, is that does not mean Democrats are guaranteed to lose the House. That's not the trend. It's just that an incumbent president loses seats. They might have enough of a cushion here to survive even a pretty big wave of Republican wins. But if the Democrats lose the House... Or even if the Republicans gain a substantial amount of seats and then they're able to form a coalition with the more conservative Democrats, that could change the Obama presidency in the last two years. Now he can't get anything done. That changes who he is going into re-election. So it's way too early to say anything about 2012, and I, I probably won't say much about it. Now, in reaction to that answer, Kevin also added, by the way, Meeting with the White House to change current events, what could have John McCain done at this point to really affect anything? 
The economic crisis was coming. Iraq wasn't going to be clearly ended and victory declared. Obviously, John McCain had only a long shot chance. But just like any football team that's down in the score, you're still looking at what's your best play. And this is a long shot play. This is a, uh, you know, the Vegas odds are not good on, on anything that McCain would do. But you still look at what's your best strategy. Since McCain and George Bush were linked together, that's what history shows. You're running as the incumbent uh, party nominee. You're linked with that president. Your only option is to make that presidency seem better. And so I think the most important meetings that John McCain had were those where he's liaisoning with the White House. Maybe he didn't have to appear at the White House, but his campaign had to coordinate with the White House and try to change policy. If Bush's policy wasn't working, he had to get the incumbent to adopt different ones. Like I said, trying to get... Uh, foreign powers to help with the Iraq situation or uh, being sure that whatever steps were taken in the economy would would help things dramatically. Probably wasn't much he could do. Those are his best plays, and I only mean to emphasize that. The linkage between the candidate and the incumbent is strong. And more than any campaigning uh, McCain would ever do, trying to actually improve events was his only play. Also, Kevin writes, at the same time, it tends to prove that running away from your party doesn't help much if trends are against your party. In fact, I'm not sure it helps much, period. While Al Gore won the popular vote in 2000, I'm convinced he should have had Clinton out there stumping for him. Trying to separate himself from the Clinton administration at the time was not a winning strategy, in my opinion. I agree with that, and I do strongly believe that Gore made a mistake in running away from Clinton too much and not using what was a tremendous asset uh, for his campaign. I recall uh, reading in an article about a conversation between Bill Daley, who was Gore's campaign manager, and Gray Davis, who at the time, of course, was governor of California, with the same point. Why didn't you use Clinton more? And uh, Bill Daley's response was, well, in, in... in general, he had a lot of popularity, but not in the swing states we needed. And Bray Davis asked the question, what about Arkansas? And Bill Daly's response was, well, we, didn't, we thought it would be unseemly to have an incumbent president campaigning in his own states, in his own home state in the last days of the election. I think that was clearly a mistake. I think the incumbent president campaigning more in his home state could have helped Arkansas. And if you were talking about a Gore win in Arkansas, there would have been no uh, worry about Florida. But that's history. Uh, Kevin also asked, was there ever in a time an incumbent enjoyed Obama's electoral win in the first term and didn't get a second term? Yes, I mean, George H.W. Bush, the current president's father, got over 400 electoral votes, but it didn't help. In the next election, he lost. But of course, as we discussed earlier, it's a good sign to win big. Uh, but good signs don't always pan out to meaning you're going to win the presidency again. So it's still going to be events that determine 2012 and why I think it's it's a little early to talk too much about it. Mr. Sutherland writes, Great podcast as usual. I appreciate you taking on the subject of race in this aspect, referring to our historic uh, podcast. It is an incredibly sad story when we look at all the opportunities politicians had to pass bills that could have made the U.S. a different place. I agree with you that this day would have come a lot quicker. While the civil rights movement in history tried to get states to change laws, it is the federal government that would have had to step in to try and fix the problem. 
yet it would take tremendous pressure from the people of America to get things changed. At the same time, presidents who could have made a bigger impact, Teddy Roosevelt uh, meeting with Booker T. Washington and writing fondly of the Buffalo soldier, soldiers while not getting laws passed, Truman desegregating the military, and FDR meeting with the civil rights leaders but asking for time to deal with the war, for instance. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. If they really would have taken racism on, they could have changed the U.S. for good. Still other presidents, Woodrow Wilson to name one, who chose to try and give the states the power to make the decisions when in reality most would side with the tyranny of the majority. I believe it's still very present today in American politics, but in different aspects and based largely on political party. So saying that I would love to hear a podcast on the history of race and presidents. Shoot even to hear you take on a guy like Woodrow Wilson, who had so many different great ideas, but many troubling ones. Mr. Sutherland writes, um, thank you for your uh, question. I still, as I did in the, in the podcast on the historic election, put the root of the problem was with the inability to enforce voting rights for black citizens in the South in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, and the disappearance of black congressmen from the Congress of those eras. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. And because of that failure, it led to failures going into the 20th century to provide for civil rights. I think if the momentum wasn't stopped there, you would have had a continuance of progress. You know, we tend to look at, in history, there's that whole great man theory. We tend to look at individuals and what did they do, presidents, for instance, and what they did or didn't do or could have done. But uh, you might have had that situation if there was more continuous progress on civil rights throughout the American history. None of the presidents look very good in this regard, going all the way from uh, Rutherford B. Hayes to John F. Kennedy. Each of them disappointed a bit. Woodrow Wilson certainly, as you give an example, actually moved to segregate more of the federal government than had been up to that time. He was, although he was the governor of New Jersey, he was originally a Southerner, and uh, for his victory uh, carried all of the, the Southern states, as Democrats did at that time. 
Emmy 105 said, Bruce, do you happen to know when the party affiliation started appearing on the ballot slip? Has this had a measurable effect on politics in this country? Well, Emmy, uh, thanks very much for the question. I believe this was part of the Australian ballot or what's also called the Massachusetts ballot uh, because Massachusetts was the first state to adopt it in the 1880s. It's the ballot that, for the most part, what we know today. Prior to that, many people voted orally, and that meant everyone knew how you voted, or they voted on slips of paper, if it was secret at all. The innovation of the Australian ballot is that it was secret, but also it was printed by the public, by the government, so that the voters didn't just get their information from parties. Prior to that, voters would get, as they still do today, slips of paper indicating who it was that they would should vote for. These are the Republicans or these are the Democrats. Hence the term tickets. You would run on a ticket. This is a ticket that would be handed to a voter so they could go in and know who they were voting for. As, you know, in the 1880s, the government and governments around the country tried to take on the political bosses and the corruption in the American political system, this was seen as an innovation. You wouldn't just get your information from political parties and bosses, you'd get it from the government. And it would give a little bit more of a chance to the other party who didn't have a big political boss gunning for them. However, if it was to be a legitimate system that voters would use, they wanted to know the information about the candidates, including the party. So if this is going to replace the ticket system of parties handing out tickets, this Australian ballot had to list both candidate, but also what party they were for. Voters needed that information. By the 1890s, almost all states used the Australian system. I'm not sure how much this actually influenced voting. There was considerable party influence and party voting prior to the printing of government ballots with the party listed. The Australian system had some influence, as did so many other things, the invention of primaries and the media and other things, in limiting boss influence in urban areas. But obviously, bossism continued. Tammany Hall continued well almost into the 1960s. So the the Australian ballot was a, a sign of progress, why she is still used today, but not a huge change in balloting. Heart of Darkness asks, Dumb question, and forgive me if it's been answered before. Why is Chester Arthur your avatar? He clearly means something to you. I'm just curious. I know little about him. Should I learn more? And what Heart of Darkness refers to is that if I answer questions on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics.com website, the uh, figure that I use, sparing you a photo of myself, is a, a picture of Chester Arthur, and we sell Chester Arthur t-shirts on the website. And it's more for his obscurity that we love Chester Arthur. He's a, an example of history. He's kind of a symbol of history uh, for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Because he shows up along with Ben Harrison, Franklin Pierce, and Grover Cleveland among the presidents that people don't tend to know. Uh he sort of becomes, again, that figure for symbols of the historical figures of the past. Is he an incredibly significant president? Probably not. But he doesn't deserve the insignificance that uh, sometimes afforded to him. Uh, he did have a role on two issues that continue throughout American political history. Immigration, 
where he first vetoed and then signed a one of the first uh, immigration lim- limitations on immigration and he also passed a civil a civil service bill which uh, had a impact on limiting corruption chester arthur was a a stalwart, which meant he was one of the old Grant supporters and a supporter of the Republican political machine, which was clearly corrupt. And his job uh, in the Customs House in New York uh, was really the center of graft and corruption. And he was fired by Rutherford B. Hayes. In four years, he would be the nominee for vice president of the Republican Party, since they picked James Garfield of Ohio, who was candidate that both factions of the Republican Party at the time could agree with, but the stalwarts and the half-breeds, the half-breeds were reformer Republicans. Since they had him on the top of the ticket, then they had to put a stalwart on the bottom of the ticket, and so Chester Arthur was vice president. Garfield gets shot, Chester Arthur becomes president, and uh, he did rebel a bit against the bosses and then worked on that civil service reform. JMAC writes, Hey Bruce, now that Obama and Biden have moved over to the executive branch, what happens to their seats in the Senate? Is it an appointment or a runoff? Also, with Ted Stevens convicted, his seats should become vacated. Uh, What happens to his seat? I hear rumor that Palin may try to fill it. Thanks for the question. And basically, the uh, yes, if a senator resigns from the Senate, the governor of that state gets to pick a replacement. And where the politics come in is that the governor does not have to pick someone of the same party. Now, if we look at both Joe Biden and Barack Obama, both who are going to resign, Obama is expected to resign shortly before he even takes the oath of office. Uh, both of the governors are Democrats, so that it would be expected that there would not be a change in party. On uh, uh, Barack Obama's seats, there's a couple of people they're talking about. There's a congresswoman from Illinois. There's a Jesse Jackson Jr. is one of the contenders. I don't know about the situation in Delaware, but the governor of Delaware will appoint someone to replace Biden. Uh, since this question was posted, there's been two developments, and one is that in the Alaska Senate race, the Democrat, after a review of the absentee ballots, has won the race. Ted Stevens has conceded, so there'll be no issue there. Had Stevens won the election, and if he was forced to resign, it would have been up to Governor Sarah Palin to pick his replacement. And she could pick herself. Whether she would or not was never clear. Uh, That would have had some interesting political ramifications, but it's not to be. That's an extremely big win for the Democratic Party, and of course it's partially the result of the... uh, indictment of Senator Ted Stevens, but Senator Ted Stevens had been a senator for 40 years, very powerful Republican senator, and the state of Alaska had not uh, voted Democrat uh, since the 1970s, and um, had not voted Democrat in a presidential election since 1964, with their governor on the vice presidential ticket of the opposite party. That was a tremendous win, uh, but that's what's happened there. In New York, now with Hillary Clinton accepting Barack Obama's offer to be Secretary of State, they'll have to replace that Senate seat. And there's all kinds of talk about who Governor David Patterson, who is a Democrat, will pick for that seat. Nita Lowy, who's a congresswoman who uh, has been around a long time and was talked about to run for that Senate seat when Hillary Clinton was running for it. Carolyn Kennedy's been mentioned, uh, numerous choices. So we have three Democratic governors so far who will be making appointments very soon.
Peter Sobel writes, The original filibuster, where, there's, where a single senator could block all legislative progress until they got what they wanted, seems painfully close to the disastrous Liberium veto of the Polish sedum uh, of the 17th and 18th century. Uh, where did the filibuster come from? Well, I'm not entirely sure um, about what that veto is, although it sounds like it was a group of nations and they had to be unanimous, which is always a uh, always a problem. Where did the filibuster come from? So I'm not actually familiar with the veto uh, in history that you cite, but it's still easy to answer your question because the filibuster is not... Uh, which which a word comes based on filibustero or a kind of a Spanish word for pirate, freebooter, etc., was not anything that involved from a form of government and placed in the U.S. system of government. Certainly was not something that the, the founding fathers created or the Constitutional Convention dictated, except in one way. The Constitutional Convention did dictate that the Senate and the House make their own rules. So this comes out of the rules procedures of the Senate. There used to be a way to limit debate in the Senate to force a vote. You could stop a senator from talking. But that was eliminated when Aaron Burr was vice president and wanted to clean up the rules of the Senate. The rule had never been used, so why not get rid of it, he thought. Then in the 1830s, a group of senators who were opposed to removing a censure of Andrew Jackson from the Senate uh, didn't have the votes, so they wanted to find another way to oppose the removal of that censure. Fine then, they just hold up debate for as long as they could. And nothing procedurally could stop them until they just couldn't keep talking. (laughs) So the opponents and the, the ones who wanted to remove the censure of Andrew Jackson won. So there is no official censure of Andrew Jackson uh, in the Senate records. It was expunged from the records. So the first filibuster attempted didn't work, but it did hang on, and there was nothing to stop senators from doing a filibuster between the 1830s and 1917. Then some limits were put on the filibuster. David said, In my view, the filibuster is a positive check on a potentially tyrannical majority. But I think Congress gridlock is generally good for the country. Congress always manages to pull together in a true crisis. Well, David, I respect your opinion, and obviously, if you listen to the uh, previous podcast, I I disagree. I had indicated that I think the filibuster is something that should be gotten rid of, although I don't think it it will be. Uh, First of all, I think there's a couple of of problems with it. It is not a natural check and balance that the, the Constitution affords. The Constitution does have certain balances. President can veto an act of Congress. Congress can override the president. The Supreme Court can hold bills to be unconstitutional. And there's amendment process if we need to make uh, new laws and add to the Constitution. So there's various checks and balances in the system. The filibuster is an additional check, but it's also one that makes the legislative more powerful than the president, which perhaps could be good. It makes the Senate Uh, have a power that the House doesn't have, and it makes senators more powerful because any one of them could start a filibuster, and then it would take an overwhelming supermajority of uh, 60 senators to stop them from talking. So the body that is most unrepresentative, you know, you have two senators from Utah, two senators from Hawaii, 
And you also have two senators from Texas, California, or New York. It's not based on population, and it's not as representative as the other bodies. I have no issue with that per se. The system, that's the way the Constitution dictates our, our country is going to be. But the Constitution did not anticipate that the Senate would have this additional power of filibuster and just hold up legislation. I can, can understand perhaps anyone looking at the, the Bush administration and seeing some of the advantages of executive power during this period might see any power given to the legislative branch as a good. It can sort of block any of the plans that a president who has a House and Senate majority might try to do, and perhaps it looks good there. But I also think that it has a pretty bad history, especially when you look at there were votes in the Senate as early as the late 1940s to have an anti-discrimination bill in this country. There were enough votes in the Senate to pass it. But because there was a filibuster, there were never enough votes to break the filibuster. And so a few group of powerful Southern senators were able to stop civil rights and anti-discrimination legislation for a long period of time utilizing that vehicle. And that's not a very good history. James Kelly writes, Great piece, Bruce. One comment. Conservatives and Republicans like to argue that Keynesian economics do not work and point to the downturn of 1937. They point to World War II as being what pulled us out of the Depression. But World War II was the equivalent of a gigantic Keynesian stimulus. Roosevelt's failure, as you theorize, was not that he did the wrong things in the New Deal, but that he did not do enough. Had he put as much money and ramped up as much industry from 1933 to 1939 as he did from 1940 to 1945, we might have pulled out completely out of the Great Depression without the war. This is relevant to today, where so many are urging caution on Obama during this economic crisis. If he chooses a cautious path, he could easily end up being another Hoover instead of a Roosevelt. He needs to be bold and he needs to spend staggering amounts of money, amount that will surely make most conservatives shudder not to mention quite a few moderates. Uh, thanks, James. And I think one of the most interesting discoveries for me in the research of the Great Depression podcast is that Franklin Roosevelt actually reduced deficit spending as a percentage of federal spending from where Hoover was because despite the creation of a large and vast federal government, the economy was improving and uh, there were more tax revenues. And, you know, taxes had increased as well. So where Hoover was still spending money, but because he uh, had actually implemented tax cuts, there wasn't enough revenue to cover the government expenses at the time because the economy was lousy too, that he actually did more deficit spending in his uh, final years there than Roosevelt was doing. And when Roosevelt made a very sharp cut in the 1937 uh, budget deficit spending or federal spending that were the percentage of federal spending that was deficit went down to something like 17 percent which was it was not the time for that type of fiscal conservatism and so i would agree with you that uh what was actually needed was a bit more rather than less and if he had just sort of continued uh we probably would have pulled out of that pulled out of the great De depression quicker it is a lesson for Obama. It's a lesson that many seem to have learned. I mean, there seemed to be no delay in spending a large amount of money, uh, $700 billion. Now, in terms of that uh, $700 billion, 
And I think if you look at uh, national income, it's somewhere around $3 trillion. So the $700 billion put in that perspective isn't a large amount of money, especially, you know, it, it's almost as if you made $100,000 a year. Could you borrow 25000 Sure you could, especially if your house was on fire. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you were in a dire emergency and needed to. Uh, of course, we're going to have to borrow probably more than that. This $700 billion isn't going to last. Was the bailout worth it? One thing I think you got to look at with a little bit of perspective of history, and it's not over yet, but to me, the real judge is, if the real test is, if the $700 billion does nothing more than secure the banks, it was worth the money. What you don't have so far in this crisis is a complete run on banks, and that's what you had in the Great Depression. So you can think about your going to your 401k and getting disappointed, going to your IRA and getting disappointed, but that is future money. Yes, there's a few people that need that money now, and they are going to suffer, and that's a shame. But when you talk about the large-scale uh, problem in the 1930s of people going to their banks and finding the money's gone, we don't have yet, knocking on wood, that that problem's occurred. And if that's all $700 billion does, you can consider it money well spent. I think we're going to have to spend more money. That's a decision the Obama administration is going to have to make. But it doesn't appear to be a time for fiscal conservatism, states. David Amulet said, Well done. This one must have taken a lot of research in reference to the Great Depression podcast. One thing that gets less attention than it should as a model for today is the WPA. At a time when we see money just thrown at people in stimulus checks, or as we're likely to see, thrown into the auto industry, it would be good to reflect on government spending that actually helps build new infrastructure for the next century. Uh, thanks, David. And uh, that that was the result of a lot of uh, research, the Great Depression podcast. I try to just give a good perspective on all sides of it, both the New Deal and the Great Depression, and do two things. One, talk about the New Deal and its place in history and how it might relate to today, which made it sort of the normal My History Can Beat Up Your Com, uh, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast, but also to try to put you more in a mode of understanding what the Great Depression was like, and I came out of doing some of that research, I think, with a better understanding, and I hope that worked. In terms of WPA, I think it would be a great thing for field trips, for schools, for instance, to go around to their local communities and look at all the WPA projects that are still there. Schools, roads, bridges. They didn't allow them to build houses, incidentally, because that was an industry that they didn't want the government competing with. So it was all infrastructure projects. Not all the things the WPA did was worth it, and you know it, it was it was seen not only to to do work but also to give people a job. So there was that, but uh, it would be a good lesson for today, and we certainly could benefit from building more infrastructure. One thing, though, I wouldn't totally knock stimulus checks. Yeah, I think the one thing we've discovered from the 1975 stimulus checks and the 2001 stimulus checks, jury's not in on the 2008 yet is that people don't spend most of it. And here I have to agree with Milton Friedman, the economist who argued that if income doesn't come in regularly, people tend to save it and not spend it. They don't think it's going to be there forever. So I think that, um, and that was, uh, argument was made when Carter wanted to do an additional uh, stimulus check at that time. What we see from the 75 and 2001 is that people spend about a third of it. So, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do stimulus checks. They're important, and they could help. But you've got to give enough because people are only going to get out there and spend about a third of that money. 
So it has to be extremely significant. And they're only going to do so much. Again, we don't know the numbers for 2008. My sense is that it did a little bit of good because it sort of pulled us through this year uh, until we had the financial crisis. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.